When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Eric Ten Hag and Manchester United march on in the FA Cup. There's overwhelming confidence that the Reds have secured one Wembley date with a dominant first leg victory over Nottingham Forest and a comfortable, if not completely convincing win at home to Reading takes United through to the FA Cup fifth round. Awaiting us there, well, you won't find Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea or Newcastle in the draw and some will therefore be optimistic of two Wembley finals in one season but there is still a lot of work to be done and at the end of the day, but we'll enjoy some comfortable progress wherever we can. A very warm welcome to the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. Thank you for joining me, Harry Robinson and Jack Tate, as we review victory over Reading and preview Wednesday's second leg at Old Trafford against Nottingham Forest. And we answer some questions from our lovely patrons whose support to the show is invaluable. Let's leave the Brazilians and their goals alone for now, Jack. We'll be with them in a second. But I think there's one key quote to sum up this game, and it's from Paul Ince, a divisive character at Manchester United, but someone with a perspective worth hearing as a player who was part of the title-winning teams of the early to mid-90s and manager of Reading. This was in his press conference. And that's no disrespect, but I just felt if we'd have played United a year ago, we'd have come here thinking you've got a right good chance of beating them. I actually felt that because I felt United had lost their, their presence you know, I felt teams were coming to Old Trafford thinking that they can get something, as Burnley did and Villa did. Um, but I think under Ten Hag in such a short space of time, he's he's, he's lifted the whole the, the club. You know, what I mean, you can see now as a you know, I always felt you know the last two or three years have been tough for the Mate United fans, and there's kind of been a kind of disparity between the fans and and the players and the club. Um, and it looks to me that Ten Hag's actually trying start to bridge that gap and you you know you can see that today you know the fans are buying into what's going on at the club this is going to take time but they are starting to get a presence about them you know and um, that's important because if you go back to the Fergie years that's what it was having the presence and the quality of players and it might take two or three years we've seen that against Manchester City even though they beat, beat Manchester City they kind of sat back you know we wouldn't have done it at our time but they're not quite here yet but he seems to really really got the club in, in, in the right position that it should be to go forward and it's his way it looks like he's doing all the things there's no stuff coming out about players this players that fragmentation in, in, in the change room they all look like they're all pulling together and that's that's really important so I'm, I'm pleased I'm really pleased as a mate United player to see you know hopefully the future looking bright I, it, it feels like we need to add too much more to what Paul had said but I do think it's a, a valuable point and as Fans who've watched United, well, I was going to say every week, but two times a week recently, 
it can be quite easy at times to kind of forget how different things were four or five months ago and very much so how different things were kind of nine or 12 months ago. We were in such a bad place. And as one of our patrons says as well, Ted Popham, how nice is it to be able to properly feel confident and relaxed again when playing a team like Reading and progressing in the FA Cup as as we have done? Well, I think the biggest evidence of that is how are you feeling at half time, Harry, going in at nil-nil? Yeah, yeah, that's true. It was, it was hardly, uh, that's kind of what I said in the intro, it was hardly convincing and it, it definitely wasn't in the first half and there was that little scare from Reading at the end, but I still wasn't worried. Right. And a year ago, I absolutely would have been and I would have been, I would have been probably angry as well because that was kind of the whole mood about the club. But here, I had the confidence that we'd go on to win it. And it's one of those things, it's, it's hard because I think on this podcast, we always try to get at, you know, what's underlying things at the club, not get too high after a couple of good results or too low after a couple of bad ones. But results do change so much about a club, even in the short term, because it, it buys you credit in the bank and it buys you time. And sometimes that's the biggest thing that you can need as as a squad and as, as a coaching staff. You know, if we'd have put in the same first half performance as we did against Reading 12 months ago, oh. went in at halftime, nil-nil, you know, Old Trafford would have been agitated. It would have been probably started to get on the players' backs very soon after half time if we didn't score in the first four or five minutes. But now the mood has completely shifted to where I think we all felt still very, or maybe quite confident going in at half time, despite it being, you know, a game where we hadn't created too much. Obviously, had the disallowed goal, but hadn't been our best performance by any means against the team that were clearly sitting back, going to let just try and soak up the pressure, the kind of game that. In the last few years, we have struggled in. And yet I, I didn't feel that sense of foreboding seeing it's half nil, it's nil-nil at half-time. It, it didn't feel that same sense of worry that I think we would have felt a while ago. And, and especially at Old Trafford, I think something that's slightly gone under the radar is just how yeah. good our form at home has been really all season since the, the first Brighton game, obviously, that, was, that we lost. Since then, I think, well, we've lost to Sociedad in the Europa League, but other than that, I think we've we're unbeaten and I think we've only drawn once at home since then, I want to say. That sounds about right. I can't remember. There's been so many games. Newcastle, but yeah, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. And it's not, it's, uh, there's two things. It's one, there's the trust in the manager from the supporters and I think he's done well without kind of overdoing it in maybe a Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool way in his first season when they were celebrating 2-2 draws with West Bromwich Albion in front of the cop. Without kind of that blatant and in-your-face connection with the fans, Ten Hag has gradually really built up that that trust from supporters. And there's also the there's also the confidence of the squad in that they know. I think they had complete faith that they'd gone on to win that game, and it showed in in their performance. And they didn't get agitated. That's partly the crowd thing. But there's the other side of it that such are the high standards that have been set. They're not like mega high in the same way as City and Liverpool in recent years and Arsenal at the moment. But you did think at half time and then it got to about 50, 55 minutes just before the opening goal. And you thought, this is such a strong team here. We really need to kick on here because we've put, we're have put we putting a lot into this game with the team that started. And it was a big surprise that Ten Hag went with such a strong team. Yeah, it was. I mean, we talked on the, the episode after the Forest first leg saying we expected, you know, really wholesale changes. And to be honest, really the only player that wasn't first choice in that starting eleven was Maguire. You know, everyone else, maybe maybe Lindelof as well, but obviously with a couple of injuries and rotation yeah. at the back, he has been in and out. I was yeah, I was shocked at how strong we went, and that you know, with Ericsson's injury, may have slightly come back to bite us. But it has been a real key element of what Ten Hag has shown us this this season so far is this 
reluctance to rotate too massively in cup games. You would think we'll see it a bit more against Forest in the second leg this week, but you know there has been a, a tendency of Ten Hag so far that he does want to play a, a strong eleven in these cup games. Whether that's going to be something that carries on, or if it's just because he feels he needs time for these players to to keep improving in his system, we, we obviously see in the coming seasons. But yeah, it, it, I think it there's also the I think there's also that desperation to well. I don't know if it is desperation from his part. I hope it is because it, it's no bad trait to win a trophy in his first season because the difference that would make it, it gets the monkey off your back, the one that Oligo and Solskjaer was never able to shake and came very close to doing, but couldn't. So I, I, I really value that. As you say, the Ericsson injury is a concern in and of itself. It's also a wider concern that I think we've all seen, well, we saw it in the Europa League pre-World Cup, that there was very little rotation. And I think we've seen it since. And I think we've, we're, we're getting away with it at the moment. There have been some injuries to Dallow and Wambasaka's come in and played well, much better than last season. And that's a credit to the stability, the kind of overall stability of this team now. So it's not to say that we're completely reliant on certain players at the moment, but you do think there are, I think recently we spoke about, and this, this kind of brings us on to Casemiro, recently we spoke about how it was quite fragile progress in, in certain elements. And so much of the progress that's been made is is tied to the performances of Casemiro and Martinez uh, and, and Rashford as well. But I think mainly Casemiro. And you do think, well, if Casemiro gets injured and he was the on the end of some rough Andy Carroll tackles as well, you wonder how what this team would look like. They coped well at Arsenal. There's not perfectly, but well enough without him. But I think he's been so crucial that, yeah, you feel United are a little bit on a on a knife edge and Ten Hag's pushing it as, as far as he can with how much he's playing these players. And I, in some ways, the World Cup slightly helped United in that sense because very few of our players got too far in the competition. We obviously had Rashford and Shaw and Varane and Martinez get to the final and Maguire for England as well. But really, considering how many players we had at, at the World Cup, we had a lot of them come back ready to play and, and get a a decent amount of rest. We're now getting to a part of the season where the next month we have, you know, just a stupid amount of fixtures. Yeah. And, and all of them important as well. You know, this, we're not going to have the FA Cup and the League Cup to rotate anymore. It's going to be two legs against Barcelona, potentially a League Cup final in, was that at the start of March, I think. End of February. You know, have 26th end of February. February. Yeah. So it's, it's, so, it's a month in which you could have a League Cup final, two legs against Barcelona, two matches against Leeds United. And then just at the start the of March of as days. well. Yeah. And just at the start of March, you'll have the FA Cup fifth round, which could be another match against Leeds. It could be City. It could be Tottenham. So in that space of 31 days, given that given February is the shortest month of the year and we've got nine games in it, if you add on a couple of days in March as well, it's it's a silly, silly 10 and really difficult games. And and games that provide less obvious opportunities to rotate than yeah. what we've seen in the last yeah. three or four weeks. You, know, you think about the games against what, Burnley, Charlton, yeah. Reading, you know, even Forest in the first leg or you know, we'll probably see it in the second leg. There have been quite obvious opportunities to rotate this team and we haven't really taken them and time will tell whether we get away with that in terms of players not burning out. Yeah, but I remember when we previewed the season and, and reacted to Tenar coming in and we've mentioned this a couple of times since that we expected some really difficult periods in this first season because of how we expected Ten Hag to adapt United's playing style and that that would require some quite ugly transition. 
we're yet to really have that. The first two games were very ugly, but they've been moved on from and, and been ruled out as a, a nasty dream of the past or nightmare even. We haven't had that. And I think if we are now going to have one of those, and perhaps we won't, but the great thing is that, and this goes back to your early point about the, the confidence at halftime against Reading, is that that credit has been built into the bank, which is, which is fantastic. Let's talk about Brazil. Casemiro first top performance two brilliant goals I played you uh, I played you this commentary just before uh, we started recording which has been in my head an earworm for days I'm going to play it to the listeners and give them that privilege as well but it is it is absolutely brilliant Casemiro 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 la 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 Casemi, Casemi, Casemiro. La 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 why not? And it's worth talking about. I mean, huge impact on, on the game, but it's probably a good opportunity. And we've touched on this a bit recently because he's been so good. It's worth talking about his impact on this team. And I think the Reading game showed that as well because, again, Aaron Wambasaka looked better and good. And I do think it's worth noting how the, the, the influence Casemiro has on the players around him, that he can receive it. He's always there to receive it. And something we spoke about with, with Scott McTominay a lot last season where it started becoming painfully obvious that he seems to hide in the shadow of his marker far too often. And and surprisingly for a player who does have some on-the-ball quality, and that would never be a help to Wambasaka, who would always, I think, like to get it out of his possession fairly quickly. He's not entirely comfortable on the ball. And Casemiro is always there to receive it. He's also always there to play the ball for Wambasaka to run forward, which we saw a couple of times. So... Uh, there are other players who benefit as well, of course, Bruno, and who benefits from that solidity behind. But I think Wambasak is a really good example of the influence Casemiro has all over the all over the team. It's been fascinating for me to watch how different Casemiro is for United than he was at Real Madrid in terms of his involvement in possession. You know, I'm not going to pretend like I, I ever watched every single Real Madrid game, but from what we all sort of saw at Real Madrid, the big concern with Casemiro was this ability on the ball at Real Madrid. He was very much just a he was very much a destroyer, you know, in that kind of old-fashioned defensive midfield kind of role. And in possession, it was very much just, you know, hand the ball off to Kroos or Modric or whoever else is on the pitch with him and let them be the creative forces. He's not obviously United's main sort of creative source, but that ability on the ball, especially to pick it up in deep areas and, and push United forward, that has been such a shock to me in, in a great way. And you're right, I think he has helped Wambasaka massively because there is someone so much more secure in possession that can receive the ball from Wambasak in tight spaces. Wambasak is a, a player who he just doesn't thrive when the the options aren't obvious and he can get himself in a bit of a tangle. And Casemiro often makes that obvious option yeah. for him because he's so good at creating angles for a pass to be able to receive it and then switch the play in the other direction. How many times last season would the our play always kind of get stuck and held, held up yeah. in that right back area? And let's not say it's perfect now, but Casemiro so often provides that little bit of an out ball who can then, and he does this so much, which I love it. Sometimes doesn't come off, but 
the first time passes from Casemiro. Yeah. It, it's similar trait to what Bruno Fernandes does. These sort of 50, 60 yard first time passes that, like I said, they aren't always the most accurate and he do, does lose possession probably more than he should from them. But when they come off, because they're done so quickly, it gets us moving in so much space. And I think that has helped us massively in just becoming more secure when we're trying to build from the back. Definitely. Anthony, some assist for the first goal for Casemiro. Yeah. It was a great moment of quality and I think one that went really underappreciated in the ground because of the finish that followed. I think people kind of forgot because and this doesn't happen very often. I've, I can never remember the man of the match being announced at Old Trafford. I know you often hear it at other Premier League grounds. I don't remember it happening before. That might be, I've just not noticed before. But anyway, Anthony was announced as the official Emirates FA Cup man of the match uh, with like three or four minutes to go. There were, it was genuinely audible laughter in the ground because I think people hadn't really noticed who'd played the pass for the um, for the first goal. He obviously did stuff aside from that first goal, but I think it represents a an overall... There is a sense in the ground at the moment that Anthony's not really doing anything. And I think people on TV, probably people watching on TV probably feel quite differently. Eric Ten Hag picked him and Casemiro out as a two standout performance. What did you make of his performance? Because I saw some really good bits and some kind of typically frustrating bits, but I thought it was quite good. I think he's had a good week, actually. I thought the Nottingham Forest performance was one of his best in a while. And I I thought he continued that into the, the Reading game. They said it was a typically frustrating performance at times. He's just not efficient enough on the ball. But you got to see a couple of moments of quality that I don't think we'd seen enough of in recent weeks. Yeah, I mean, the pass to Casemiro, is, it was just sublime. The, it was a great run, firstly, by Casemiro, but the spot from Anthony, the weight on the pass, to Casemiro didn't even have to break stride you know, to pick up that pass. There's a few other good moments where he was linking up better with Wan-Bissaka and the, the Casemiro run... Also, there was the one for the goal and then there was also one in the first half by Bruno Fernandes. It was almost carbon copy where Anthony kind of cuts inside and plays that that sort of reverse pass inside the fullback to Fernandes making that run and Bruno shoots across goal and it just went wide. That is the exact kind of run that we talked about in, might have been after the Arsenal game or after the Forest game. I can't remember which one where we were saying he needs those runners going beyond him, whether it's Wan-Bissaka on, on the overlap or one of the midfielders kind of inside him. Because being a player who wants to cut inside so much, he isn't ever going to be a player, even if he turns out to be a brilliant winger, he's never going to be a player that's going to make runs to the byline 20 times a yeah. game. So you need those those runners going beyond him, A, to create space for Anthony if he wants to come inside and shoot, but also so that he can play these kind of passes because he does have the quality to do it, as we saw with those two balls against Reading. It's just a matter of getting the team understanding the, mo- the movements they should be making when Anthony gets the ball because... He is obviously quite predictable. And so that's bad for the good sorry, bad for Anthony in that it allows defenders to predict what he's going to do. But it's good for United in that it's it makes it very obvious for his teammates yeah. what kind of runs they should be making to help him out. And we saw in the Reading game when they make the runs, Anthony does have the quality to find them. And that's adding a different attacking pattern of play to United's toolbox, which is something we harped on about for <laughs> ages last season talking and, and kind of under Oliver de Solskjaer a lot that we didn't, it, there was not enough variety to how United created chances and that made it too easy to defend against us. And you think about those kind of, those runs from from deep, from either the attacking midfielder, from the other winger maybe, or from the deeper midfielders is is 
changing the whole way that United can attack. It's not there yet. It's, it's obviously not there. This this was good. A lovely goal. I think we've seen it a couple of times. I'm trying to remember, was it against Southampton? There was a, a slightly similar goal that involved Bruno. I can't remember exactly, but we've seen a, a couple of hints of it, but you, it does give you hope going forward about how we might see that kind of level of attacking quality that we've come to associate with City. So like Gundogan making those late runs into the area, you, you hope that we'll see that that more and more. And he, especially next season when, when Anthony's fully settled in and, and the attack's really got the attention it deserves because it, it feels like a lot of Ten Hag's job at the moment has been to solidify the defence and bring the character of this United team differently and, and work on playing out from the back and that the attack is maybe the next stage and then there'll be a, another many stages after that to take United to to the very top hopefully some finish from Fred as well a rare reminder of his nationality <laughs> it was just a, a Brazilian boys kind of taking us forward wasn't it against Reading yeah yeah I mean Fred given, given Ericsson coming off with injury we'll see how serious that ends up being could end up becoming a much more important player for us in the coming weeks yeah. You, I'll be interesting to see how United kind of react to that because Fred, Fred's skill set is just so different to Ericsson. Ericsson in, in possession has generally been the deeper out of the two with him and Casemiro, which I think makes sense. But you'd probably want that flipped if Fred comes in and plays alongside Casemiro. So I do. We'll have to see. Yeah, I do think when, when we're talking about the fixtures early and you you kind of run through the ones we've just played, a lot of teams who will be who who were and we knew were going to sit back against us and we'd have to break them down like Charlton and Reading and, and Forest. Well, Forest actually didn't sit that deep and weren't that difficult to break down. Mm-hmm. But the, the point remains, the run of games coming in, and this is something I, I think has been on my mind for a while. And I think I mentioned it before the City game that I think what Ericsson gives to us is less important in those big games. I think he gives really valuable on the ball quality that much is is abundantly clear and that that calmness in possession can be really useful but it's only useful if we can win the ball back which he's not very good at doing if we can stop the other team's attacks which I don't think he's very good at doing in that deep role and if we can actually get out of our own defensive third when we do have the ball which I think we saw at Arsenal Ericsson couldn't provide us with and I think if you look at the fixtures coming forward those Barcelona games I would love to have Ericsson available for all these games, absolutely, and and I think he'll be he would be needed anyway because United need various options. But I do think his defensive contributions leave a lot to be desired, and that Fred has often shown himself to not be the perfect option, not at all, but give United more in that sense, be the little terrier running around in midfield, making interceptions and pressing well, and, and Ericsson hasn't given us that. So I think the run of fixtures and maybe this would come back to bite me in an extraordinary way but the run of fixtures coming up is probably a better time to be missing Ericsson than the ones that have just passed yeah potentially although I mean we are going to have some even though we have a lot of fixtures and they're important we are going to have in the Premier League anyway quite a lot of games against teams that you think will probably sit back against us you know they're, they're, they're big games the Barcelona ones definitely I think you're right Probably a game where you'd be likely to see Fred anyway. You know, maybe the the Leeds away game, probably not so much at home. But, you know, it's really just, it comes down again, like we mentioned after the Arsenal game, just United's depth is is fragile, especially in in midfield. And we just don't have players of similar enough profiles. You know, Casemiro and and Eriksen have been really, really good, but we don't really have 
anyone with the same profile as either of those two players to come in off the bench if if and when they have to go out. We saw how detrimental that could be with McTominay coming in against Arsenal. Yeah. We'll see what it's like with Fred potentially coming in for, for Ericsson. But yeah, the midfield is really the one area where you feel like United are a little fragile at the moment. Yeah. But having said that, I thought Fred was good against Reading when he came on. It was a great finish for his goal. And, you know, he provided us some, you know, steady play, which is what we needed at that point to get back to how we originally got onto this topic. Yeah. And he's, he's got a real point to prove because he needs a new contract. United. If he wants to stay at United, he needs to show how valuable he can be. And that's no bad thing. Um, and that links to a question we have from one of our patrons, Ethan, who says, if Ericsson is out for a while, how much will not signing midfielder hinder us for the rest of the season? I think we've given a kind of half answer to that, but what would your, what would the second half of that answer be for you? Yeah, I, I think it could, it could really end up hindering us a lot. It's a tricky one for United because you, you understand maybe why we didn't go out and sign another midfielder. Because if you end up with three new midfielders at the club in the coming in at one time, it, it's tricky. And we saw how long it took Casemiro, for example, to integrate into the team you know it took him a good six weeks or so and and even before then he, he his performances weren't great it's even harder if one of those players is then going to be probably on the bench for a lot of that time and with the way the transfer market is now I understand why United might not have wanted to spend you know realistically to get even a, a player good enough to be on the bench most weeks it's going to cost 30 40 50 million pound look at Arsenal spending potentially spending 75 million on, on Caicedo who may not even start for them so it, it is a it's a tricky one for United, and I understand why we weren't able to sign one. But I think we came into the season always knowing that midfield depth was still going to be the biggest challenge for yeah. us. You know, we lost Pogba and Matic at the end of last season, so effectively signing Casemiro and Eriksson really just meant that we stood still. You know, we we upgraded in quality yeah, in terms of Casemiro <laughs> for, for Matic big time, and Eriksson probably fits that role better than Pogba does. Although I you know, Pogba next to Casemiro is probably a different beast to what we saw for much of his time at United. But I think that is something that we we forget sometimes that really signing those two midfielders just enabled us to stand still in terms of depth. You can um, imagine uh, Ten Hag still hankering for De Jong and to have Ericsson as that third substitute Massively. option with De Jong and Casemiro instead. Yeah. And, I, and, I think, and I think that probably was the, the yeah. plan at the beginning of the transfer window. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk a bit more about recruitment and, and transfers in a second, uh, but we'll have our first guest to play a clue, which is Jack saying for me this week, the basic rules, if you've forgotten or you're a new listener, is there are three clues throughout the episodes. They're all United players, ex-players or staff or ex-staff. And yeah, the quicker you answer it, the, the more points you get. Jack, can you go ahead with clue one, please? So clue number one is... My United career spanned such length that I played alongside Arthur Alberston and Wes Brown, making over 400 appearances in the process. Wow. So I'll say that again. My United career spanned such length that I played alongside Arthur Alberston and Wes Brown, making over 400 appearances in the process. Okay. That's good food for thought, but I definitely haven't got an answer yet. Um, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> There's a few names floating about, but there's so many floating about that I'm not going to say them yet. Let's um, we'll we'll answer a few patron questions and then uh, and then have the the second clue and maybe I'll have something then. The first question being uh, from Ted Popham, who says, "How much credit does the new behind the scenes structure at United deserve for the recent transfers? Obviously, Casemiro was sensational on Saturday, and Ten Hag can take a lot of credit for the team's good form, but overall signings have been pretty good so far this season." 
I even think Veghorst is a really good short-term solutions flash squad player. That's Ted Popham's question. I think I think you can give some credit with regards to Casemiro specifically in the way that it was quickly done and negotiated and the fact that he was convinced to come to United. He was clearly, in the end, desperate to do so. Absolute credit there. What I don't think we yet have any evidence of I'm not surprised that we don't have any evidences yet because I think it often happens when a new manager comes in in their first transfer window. I don't think we've yet seen really clever game-changing recruitment. If you look at our signings, Casemiro, blatantly obviously brilliant before he joined United. Anthony Martinez taken uh, straight from Ten Hag's most recent club, Tyrell Malassia, someone that Ten Hag had watched against his own team last season. He was at Feyenoord, Ten Hag was Ajax manager. Ericsson, someone who had been at Ten Hag's old club, who had played for two teams in the Premier League. And Veghorst, someone that Ten Hag had watched since he was 16, came from the same part of the Netherlands. He kept an eye on his career. Those are all blatantly Ten Hag signings. Uh, Casemiro is the kind of borderline one, but he was so good. It was an obvious signing to make. Absolute credit for doing it. Uh, That's all fine, but it doesn't represent a really good recruitment strategy or department yet and it's not only a United thing this far from it and I think it's actually positive in the first season because in Martinez and Anthony there are two players who who have been kind of pre-made for this United team to fit into Ten Hag's system to lead the other players and to kind of help them understand Ten Hag's system with the right mentality but long term I think it needs to needs to be different. United need to be finding, I think United could find players at better value than they have done in this past window and they could find them before they're brilliant at Real Madrid and even before they're brilliant at Ajax in the case of Anthony and Lissandra Martinez. I I think we can definitely say that things seem to have improved off of a a small sample size so far and I think it's fine to say that, you know, that without, to, to kind of paraphrase what you said, Harry, I don't think United have done anything special in the transfer market yet when especially when you look at the players that we signed you know none of them really were unknown quantities and you could argue that obviously Ericsson was free but the others we probably overpaid slightly for yeah which is which is not in itself a massive issue as a a club like United you're always going to be forced to overpay to some degree like I mentioned Arsenal paying 75 million for Caicedo it happens Newcastle paying 40 million for Anthony Gordon but I, I yes, think but those are both. Of that, you, but both of those are they're not bad signings, but they're not evidence of good recruitment. Newcastle shouldn't have no, to that, be signed. That's, what that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Th- that like the the signings that we made aren't evidence of good recruitment, but they have been good signings. Yeah. If that makes sense, good recruitment to me is having a really good process in place, getting a really good deal on a player, and then them working out. A, a good signing, this is kind of what I say about Jaden Sancho, is that even if Sancho's, Sancho never plays another minute for Man United, I will never look back at that and say that was a bad signing because he was the right fit for United at that time. It hasn't worked out so far. But and in Casemiro, Anthony and Ericsson, you know, players that have come in, have provided us with a lot of minutes in Casemiro and Ericsson in particular, really good quality for us. You know, I think you can give credit to Ten Hag and everyone else involved in those in those processes and those decisions because they have come in and we clearly had a plan for how to use them as well, which I think is the, probably the biggest difference that you could say that we've had from last summer's transfer window compared to previous ones. We had a very clear plan of how we were going to use all of those players that we saw. And in the past, it's felt like United has kind of willy nilly bought players that were 
good players on paper without a very clear understanding of how we were going to use them. Yeah, so that's the, t- the two positives are the average to good way in which those transfers were wrapped up. Ericsson took a long time, but it was done in pre-season. Malassi was done in pre-season. Martinez was done in pre-season. Anthony was probably the blot on that record book. Casemiro took a, a, a little bit longer than a, a, an idealist would have liked. And Anthony, we overpaid for having, we could have got him for cheaper in the summer. But in general, that's been good. And the, uh, the I think the big one is what you've just said, is that they fit into United team. They weren't random signings. So yeah, full credit for that. 100%. Yeah, and I think it's fine to give that credit without running to the, you know, screaming to the fences, shouting that everything's fixed at United and, you know, we're suddenly a, a brilliantly run club and all this stuff. It's one transfer window with a new manager where, you know, United had a lot of scope to to do things like differently and, and credit to the, the people involved in United's transfer structure now that we did defer to Ten Hag, which I think was the right thing to do. But the challenge now is to do that year on year and given that United at the moment seem to not have the biggest budget for transfers, it's going to be more important to get some good deals, not just sign obvious players for large fees. Yeah. And this brings, this is Ted's second question is, he says, this is a question about my favourite non-United player to watch at the moment, um, Calron Matoma of Brighton. How good do you think he is? Such could be. I love watching him play. Would love United to get him instead of another top six club. If United were to get him, would he be a good signing? He could give squad depth plus competition for spaces, the type of signing City make all the time. Or do we already have too many left wingers, especially with Garnacho needing game time? There's quite a lot there, but going off what the point we were just making, I think United have to be making these signings sometimes from a fellow Premier League club, but if, if possible, more often than not, from their original club. And it goes back to the Caicedo example you said with Brighton and Arsenal. Everyone's looking at Brighton and going, oh, they've, they've got good players. Well, yes, because they've been really clever about it. They've got a, a bit of a lock on the South American market because they've got good scouting, good recruitment, and they now have proof that they can give to players that they are a platform to go on to the top of the European game. United win for Caicedo as well at a much cheaper price. He went to Brighton. How far United got with that, we don't know. But there, there was he had been scouted by United. There was definitely some interest. And Brighton are doing what Benfica have done time and time again. But at the moment, today's news as we're recording is about Enzo Fernandes and Chelsea. Shakhtar Donetsk have done with Brazilians in the past, like Fred and many others. Ajax are brilliant at it. But everyone's looking at Brighton in the Premier League and maybe smaller Premier League clubs might look at Brentford and think, wow. And in the fairly recent past, it was Southampton. And they're thinking, all right, let's buy their players. But if you're really good, then you're not thinking that. You're thinking, let's do what they're doing or better and get these players before they cost 60 million and 70 million. But it, it requires so many things, trust, knowledge, a bit of money, uh, risk-taking, but crucially, really crucially, I think, stability. And that's what Brighton have had, even when they've changed managers. And most Premier League clubs don't, including United. I think that's what makes it so hard because it's very difficult to present a really good option of uh, and pathway to a talented young player when you don't have that stability. But on Matoma, he's, he's great. And I'll leave, Jack, you can talk about whether you think United should consider signing him. But <laughs> I do think there needs to be, especially because of the financial issues United have at the moment and everything's up in the air because of sale. But I think it was a personal point you raised. We need to be looking for getting those players before, which we, you need a combination, don't you? Because 
you can have your real Ferdinand and Wayne Rooney signings, but you need your Cristiano Ronaldo signings and your Chisung Park signings. And there's so many more, but yeah. On, on Matoma as a player first, he's, that goal. he's unbelievably <laughs> good. Yeah. I was, so for the, you mentioned last, last time I wrote a piece about Anthony and Matoma in, in that article, I was creating some like radar charts to show different players' strengths and weaknesses. And Matoma was one of the players I compared Anthony to. And it, basically I, I did it sort of like percentile, the, what, what percentile are you compared to other Premier League wingers on like five different skill sets? And I don't think Matoma was lower than like the 68th percentile mm. on a single skill in his first full season in, in the Premier League. It's, it's ridiculous the, the, the ability that he has. And I think he's, you see a lot of young players, especially wingers come in and they're like this, that Garnacho is a, a, an example. They're very dynamic. They dribble past players like it's nothing, but maybe the end product isn't always there. And that was sort of Mitoma for a little bit, but he was in that period for felt like a month, and now he's started to add that in product not, in the last few this weeks. Is the, this is a crazy. Thing. He's not young; he's twenty five years old. No, I know. But and Brighton have done. This is what they're doing. They're they're going to emerging football markets and finding the best talent. So something that I I've always wonder why clubs don't do this more is. Mitoma to me is a, is a good example of a player where if United went and bought Mitoma, you know, let's say we bought him at the time when, when Brighton bought him, right? Realistically, Mitoma wouldn't have got any real good opportunities at United. He probably would have ended up like Ahmad or Palistri or, you know, whoever else at United, like a Garnacho Elanga kind of type where he might have got a few minutes here and there in the cup, probably wouldn't have played enough to improve and get to the level he's at now. But I don't understand why Premier League teams don't take these small risks. What did Matoma cost Brighton? It was like five million, wasn't it? Yeah, think, Something yeah. like that. You know, I don't understand why big Premier League clubs don't take what for them is these tiny, tiny risks to spend under £10 million on a player and send him on loan for a couple of seasons. You know, this isn't like sending an academy player on loan where, you know, you're sending them to the Championship or, or League One. Send them to, to Brighton or, you know, to Fulham or Brentford and and... You know, you can have some, some control over where they go, make sure they're in a team that is going to allow them to improve where you're confident that the coaching setup is, is you know, well-placed to help this player progress in their career. If it doesn't work out, you can sell them probably for 15, 20 million a couple of years late, later after they've had some Premier League experience. Yeah. If they improve and get to a point where Mitoma is now, you you know, you bring them back. I, I don't understand why that isn't a more well, widely used approach. Yeah, I think the problem is, I think the other problem so United have signed a couple of players like Fakunda, Palistri and Ahmad. And I think they came at a time where they looked like panic buyers. But I do think, I think at the time the club bought them, they thought these are really good for the future signings. And Palistri is now showing he's a, a good player. The difficulty is that you do have two things unique to Manchester United and a select few other clubs. One is the tax, the United tax, and the Polistri cost more than he would have done for Brighton. If yeah. Brighton had been in for Polistri, he wouldn't have cost, I think, what in the end was about £9 million, I think maybe €12 million Euros or something, around that fee. I can't remember exactly. And Ahmad certainly would not have cost how much he did. Although I think it is worth noting with Ahmad, everyone keeps quoting him as this £37 million player, but a huge amount of that was in add-ons, potential add-ons. They're both doing really well. So United are, it's not that we're not doing this at all. And I think... It's probably worth giving the club some credit for those two players before they might 
end up being first teamers rather than after. And Ahmad's doing well and we have sent him on loan. We haven't managed it perfectly though because the Rangers loan wasn't brilliant. Palistri, I don't think, should have gone to uh, Alaves for, for a season and a half when it, he wasn't getting enough game time and etc. The other thing United is when you sign these players, as in the case of Palistri and Ahmad, the pressure is just, and the attention on those transfers is just on another scale to to Mitoma going to Brighton, which no one would really notice except Brighton fans and some very switched on football fans. And then we don't find out. And then Brighton suddenly kind of, everyone thinks, oh, Brighton suddenly have this really good winger, but it's because the attention isn't there. So it is a very different challenge at United. I think it's worth, it, it, it's definitely worth noting that. But it is a really interesting kind of debate that I imagine is had at football clubs all the time. And I'm sure people raise these yeah. things like, should we be looking more in the Japanese market because they're clearly improving as a as a footballing nation all the time? And should we, instead of looking at Argentina and Brazil, should we be looking at Colombia and Ecuador and Venezuela and Peru for the best player of their generation in that, in that country? Would that get us more value for money? It's, it's fascinating. And also being able to being able to make signings like this as a top club is also it it's something that it's like a luxury you're afforded by stability. You know, a team like Man City can make these kind of signings because if they don't if if that player ends up stopping them from signing a first team player, let's say, which it shouldn't given how little money they'd spend on it, but they have that stable base that they know they're gonna be competing for titles year after year. The other at yeah. United Gone. The other the other big benefit the city have is that they control about ten football clubs all over the world. Yeah, so they can send their players on loan to New York City and Melbourne City, and they have a Bolivian club. And that's the multi club model is just blatantly unfair, as shown by Red Bull and City Football Group. But there seems to be very little effort to stop it. Yeah, and and you know Brighton, I think offer a great example of what can be done when a club is run smartly. And that, and that doesn't mean that it's run like a business necessarily. I'm sure Brighton have been very profitable because they keep buying all these unknown players for under 10 million and then selling them for 50 odd. But, you know, it's just when a club is run in a smart way with very clear valuations on players, with very clear understanding of, of what they want. I've just been reading the uh, Soconomics book that's been out for a long time now, like the most up, recent updated edition. And there's a long chapter in there about how Leon in sort of the mid to late 2000s and early 2010s did a very similar thing. You know, you just have very clear valuations of players. You go after where areas in terms of positions or geographic areas where players generally are undervalued and you sell mm-hmm. them when they're overvalued. You know, there are ways you can kind of, I guess, game the transfer market to something, but it's much harder to do that at a club like United. And, yeah. and that is a fair point, fair, fair thing to point out. It's not making an excuse. It is a it is a fair point. It is easier to make these kind of signings as a as a Brighton because you don't get sort of taxed and like big clubs like United do. Yeah, on a non United point, what's also fascinating, and I don't think I've read anything about this, is how why the clubs who are really good at this, like the example of Leon, stop being good yeah. at it. So, Bruce, you could call Brighton if if this persists for Brighton. People will compare them to Borussia Dortmund of 10 years ago. Dortmund are still doing, uh, churning out great talents and are still a great place to go as a young player. They've managed to maintain this for a long time now, but other clubs kind of come and go in terms of this. 
And it's, why does that happen? Because I guess, how do you do it sustainably? Because I guess there comes a time when you start challenging and getting closer and closer to Champions League spots or Europa League spots or even higher. And then it becomes harder and harder to do this. So that, I mean, I haven't got the answer. I just think that'd be really interesting. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, Tottenham is a good example of their their approach has been slightly different in that they haven't sort of had amazing recruitment in the same way that like Brighton or, or something like Leon or Dortmund have, but just an example of a team that is on the outside of that top four or five and trying to, you know, they obviously have broken into that top six, made it into a proper top six, but have struggled to really take that, the final step without having, you know, the huge money bankrolled owners come in like Chelsea and Man City and now Newcastle. It is really hard to stick to those principles and get yourself over the top and be comp- consistently competing for league titles, Champions League titles. It's getting into that sort of third to sixth range is possible, and Brighton may well do that this season. But getting from there to the final step is incredibly hard while sticking to these kind of principles. And that is why these clubs should be challenging for the cups instead. Yeah. Because if I was a, I mean, no, I'm, I'm not going to say if I was a Brighton fan because that's unfair. I, I don't think you can ever say if I was a fan of another team because it, you just don't know what you would think if, if that was the case. But if I try to think of myself as a fan of a club at that level who, who seem really well run and doesn't matter when they change manager, they're appointing really good coaches and it's a great playing style and you're getting these great players through. I would love to keep at that level in the league if you were then winning cups and doing that rather than kind of becoming one of those perennial top four challengers, but not quite there and not doing that well in the championship. You know what I mean? I think that would, I don't think clubs appreciate how much cups would mean to their fans more than getting two places higher in the Premier League. I mean, that's to some degree what Leicester have really become after they won the the league in 2016. You know, that season was obviously a bit of an aberration. Mm. And since then, I mean, the last season and this season have been different. They've struggled. But before then, in that sort of 2017 to 2021 kind of period, that is really what Leicester became. It was challenging for the top four. I think two seasons in a row, they missed out on Champions League on the final day. You know, been a consistent Europa League team. They won an FA Cup in there. You know, they they sort of went on this sort of model where they were kind of content to be in that sort of third to sixth range in the league. And they they were genuine top six challengers for quite a long time there, probably longer than any other club has managed to sustain that without having, you know, new owners come in and, and they won the cup. And that might be the, the sort of way that teams try and, and build some kind of success there. It is, it is really hard to, because the, the problem is if you don't have the owners that can put in so much money into the club, A, it's incredibly hard to hold on to your players because they're always going to be drawn to not even just the money side of it, but the, the sort of prestige and the potential success of the the sort of yeah. legacy top six clubs without, for want of a better way of describing them. And it, one of the only ways to keep those kind of players around is to show your ambition and prove to them that, that they can, you know, get all this success with you. And that often entails spending more than you normally want in the transfer market. And if you look at Leicester's recruitment, they haven't really gone down that road so much, but their recruitment well, has definitely yeah. got a lot worse over the and last three or four in years. In terms of what we were saying earlier about why does it stop? Well, a lot of their key recruitment, a lot of the key staff members of that recruitment team left Leicester and went to other clubs. 
So a lot of it can be down to personnel rather than kind of structural issues. Uh, we better move on. Can I have guest the player clue two, please? You can indeed. So clue number two is my role in two goals that will live forever in United folklore has been largely forgotten as I assisted both David Beckham's goal from the halfway line against Wimbledon and Eric Cantona's famous chip against Sunderland. Is it? <laughs> So I can read that again. My role in two goals that will live forever in United folklore have been largely forgotten as I assisted both David Beckham's goal from the halfway line against Wimbledon and Eric Cantona's chip against Sunday. I've just got a gut instinct. Is it Brian McClare? It is Brian McClare. Yeah, well done. I, w- I wouldn't have known the... I've never heard the Beckham one. I feel like I've... Just, you know, when there's something just in the back of your head yeah. that I've read... I've. It might have even been like him tweeting about it or something. I only I've just read that McClare assisted the Cantona <laughs> chip. I to be honest, I, a similar thing for me with the Beckham one. I I knew the Beckham one from a few days ago because I was watching. I think it was like a, an, a suggested video on Facebook or something. Something with it was like Beckham kind of talking about his goal o- overlaid with the actual goal being played, and he he started it off with you know Brian McClare like poked the ball through to me. It never even right. occurred to me really before then. Who like how the ball even fell to Beckham? Normally the clip just like doesn't even show that part. Yeah, you know, just sees him looking up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad whoever I read that off on most likely just a random tweet one day in the past two years. <laughs> I'm very grateful too because yeah, that's very helpful. And played. Yeah, he what would he joined in '86 or '87? Played with Alberston. Yeah, he joined in '86 uh, and left in '98. Yeah, and then was United's head of academy for a long time and was very good at it as well. Yeah, He was back at Old Trafford on Saturday. They had a little reunion for the 1993 Premier League winners, which he, Brian McClare now has. He has his own podcast, actually, which is all right. He has a massive, uh, like, white, bushy sailor's beard. He looks like a fantasy novel writer at the <laughs> moment. And they all, yeah, Mark Hughes was there and, and various others. It was lots of grey hair which is, I'm sure, strange for people who supported that world, world Live and and conscious for that team in 1993. Yeah. Another thing that I, f- I was found interesting as I was trying to get clues for Brian McClare, do you know he was the first United player when he, in his first season when he scored 20 goals? He was the first player since George Best to score 20 goals in a season for United in a 20-year gap. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Who was, was, was that 20 league goals or 20 overall? That was, yeah, it was 20 league goals, yeah. So he scored 24 in the league. Let's move on to the youth loan and women's roundup, beginning with the... Under-21s, for whom Amari Forson and Noam Emran scored first-half goals. 
in a 2-1 Friday night home victory against Blackburn Rovers, which continues a very good run of form for the team since the winter break. Prior to Christmas, they'd drawn too many games. I think it was seven from 12 and they'd won very few games. They were a young team, definitely, very much so, but still were really in need of victories and they've started to come since the winter break, which is something the coaching staff promised throughout the first half of the season, but I don't know if everyone believed them. It's now five in a row. Uh, four in the league and one in the Premier League International Cup. Four consecutive league wins since a chastening 6-1 defeat at City back in November. The two goals in the 2-1 win against Blackburn were good. Zidane Iqbal set up the first with a lovely high ball into the area that was flicked on by Mari Forsen and then Dan Gore created the second turning in a tight space driving forward and playing in Emran who chopped back before finishing really well and then copied Marcus Rashford's celebration after which was nice the under 18s had a less positive weekend leading Wolves away from home 3-1 but letting the home team first get back into it and then equalise in the 88th minute 3-3's draw in the end nevertheless some lovely bits of play the goals were a Manny Norkett penalty and then Victor Musa, his first for the club at this level and Shay Lacey the 15 year old who's making a bit of impression at the moment some really positive performances from him his goal was silly a one of those shots from miles out that has loads of dip and swerve on it. And uh, two other 15-year-olds made their debut in the game, actually, Reese Munro and Jaden Camerson off the bench, the, the latter Camerson. It's, you often get debuts for players of that age group or not necessarily age 15 or 16, but kind of school year, quite late in the season. It's pretty early for them um, to be getting them some very, very young players. And um, yeah, good for them. Great experience. And yeah, Shay Lacey's doing well. And so are the both teams at the moment. Jack, what's the, the big headline of the loan news this week? Well, it's probably Ahmad Diallo yet again. Yeah, never he, ends. He played so well. It's no bad thing. I don't know if you watched the, the Sunderland Fulham game. It was such a good, good game no, to I missed watch. It. Ended 1-1. Ahmad didn't manage to get an assist or a goal, but played incredibly well. Again, he had a couple of good opportunities in the second half. Sunderland went ahead in the second half. It was such an open game. And like I said, Ahmad had a couple of chances on the counter-attack. One, he drew a good save from the keeper. And then right at the end, there was almost an incredible FA Cup moment. This isn't relevant to Ahmad, but I just wanted to share because you were talking about some 15-year-olds making their debuts for United. Oh, yeah. yeah the 15-year-old for Sunderland, <laughs> Chris Green, came on with five minutes to go and he actually had he actually scored what looked like the winning goal in the 92nd minute and it was chalked off for off what was a very obvious offside Ahmad played the ball through to I'm not sure who it was running through and they ended up pulling it back to to rig to put in the net it was an obvious offside but there was for a few seconds the scenes of a 15 year old taking Sunderland through in the FA Cup crazy but they were now 2007 replay, so Ahmad will get yeah. another chance these, these players born in 2007 <laughs> it's just ridiculous isn't it yeah but yeah, Ahmad will get another chance yeah. to to impress against Premier League opposition whenever the, that replay is scheduled back at the Stadium of Light. And who knows, could yet be drawn against United. Obviously, wouldn't be able to play against us. But it felt, for them, v Sunderland felt like a very much like an old school Premier League game from like our childhood, you know, that mid to, to late 2000s. A real kind of yeah. proper like Premier yeah. League scrap. Then in the other loan news, there wasn't a whole lot for United this week. Charlie Savage was an unused substitute. We talked a little bit about the weird situation that he was walking into at Forest Green. And it, it got even stranger in the last week or so since we last talked about him. <laughs> they have since hired Duncan Ferguson as their manager. He looked like he was maybe in the frame to take over at Everton. Ended up going to Forest Green. Savage was an unused sub in his first game. Forest Green, who had bottom of League One, looked like they had salvaged a win finally. And then in Ferguson's first game, they conceded two stoppage time goals to Shrewsbury 
in the 95th and 98th minute wow. to end up losing 2-1. So we'll see how Charlie Savage gets on there. He, we may see him get some more minutes think, as he's there a bit longer. Yeah, I think Duncan Ferguson will like him because maybe, I mean, Savage is a good player, a really good player with some some great attributes, but his attitude is just like yeah. absolutely spot on and Duncan Ferguson will like that. Yeah, it feels like a player that Ferguson could easily warm to. Then... For Hannibal Medjbri, uh here and Alvaro Fernandez were the others that others that played. Both were subs. Hannibal came on as a sub for Birmingham with about half an hour to go in their FA Cup game against Blackburn. And he came up with a late assist for the equaliser that took Black uh, that got Birmingham back with a two-all draw. That gets the, get, gets them a replay, which will happen in the next week or two. And then Alvaro Fernandez came on just for the last 10 minutes or so of Preston's 3-0 FA Cup loss to Spurs. Difficult situation for Fernandez to come into and didn't see that much of the game. And then finally, in the final bit of loan news, Ethan Laird's injury. We mentioned last week that he had to come off the QPR with what looked like a hamstring injury. Some good news on that front. It's not as serious as was initially feared. He'll probably miss QPR's game against Hull this weekend, but will likely be back within a couple of weeks. Nice. I think uh, reading today, the first via team talk, and then I think on the Manchester Evening News this evening that Charlie McNeil set to go on to Newport County as well, which is an interesting move. Newport County in League Two, 19th at the moment, I think only five points clear of the of the relegation zone. McNeil, who made his debut for United under Ten Hag in September against Real Sociedad, he, I think he was in the travelling squad, but didn't come off the bench in Moldova against FC Sheriff. He's was key part of the FA Youth Cup team last season. He's 19 now, a striker, scored loads of goals, um, last season he joined United in 2020 having played for us as a, a young kid then gone to City scored a load of goals came back I think he scored four against City in, in one of the derbies and kissed the badge on his chest which was great he's a, a proper red but yeah good good for him to get a long move he needs it It's uh, it'll be important in his development he's had a slightly less prolific season this this time around but scored two goals last week against Feyenoord in the Premier League International Cup so will go into this loan move with a bit of confidence, which is good and best of luck to him. As for United women, cut progress for them too. They beat Sunderland 2-1 on Sunday with a Nikita Paris double, one in each half. Victory takes Mark Skinner's team into the last 16 of the FA Cup. United haven't always been that good in the cup competition since their foundation in 2018. So good to get some progress in there. Onabadier's assist for the first goal was excellent. Sunderland equalised in the 67th minute, but Nikita Paris got her second almost immediately after with an emphatic finish from a Rachel Williams layoff. Estelle Cascarino made her debut in the match after signing this January. In other transfer and contract news, Jade Moore's joined Reading on loan. Uh, Centre-back and all-round top red and friend of the pod recently, Millie Turner, signed a new deal until 2025. And two youngsters have got their first pro deals, Jess Simpson, an 18-year-old defender, and goalkeeper Safia Middleton-Patel of the same age. They are the 10th and 11th academy graduates to sign professional deals for United Women. Uh, Jack, uh, we don't need it anymore because we know what the answer is, but what would the final clue have been for uh, for guess the player? The final clue would have been, I joined United in 1987 from Celtic and went on to score 127 goals and remain the second highest Scottish appearance maker for United. That's a good start. Who's number one? It's the man I mentioned before, Arthur Alberston. Ah, interesting. Nottingham Forest on Wednesday. United 3-0 up. Wednesday 8pm, second leg. A place in the Wembley final awaits. We can't lose this, can we, Jack? <laughs> <laughs> just smacking some wood there, yeah. just, to, just to be sure. So, well, now we can. Now that you've actually said it, I mean, it would it would take something <laughs> incredibly special and disastrous for it to go wrong. I think if you're United this 
is definitely a game to rotate some players. I do finally expect some rotation, although we have been saying that for about yeah. five weeks in a row now. But this, this, I mean, this feels like the game that that should be, you know, earmarked for some rotation. Finally, give some players a rest, keep them on the bench as Ten Hag likes to do, likes to do, probably along with some players like Kobe Mainu, Palistri, and get them some minutes if the game is you know comfortable and if it becomes tight at any point, you know, can bring on the big guns. But this feels like a game United should be just seeing out comfortably, hopefully, you know, get an early goal and it really settles things down. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I agree with you in that we've said it time and time again, but you think surely this will be, will be the time where we could see like a front three of Garnacho, Elanga and Palistri with Elanga through the middle. Elanga's also been getting loaded, apparently 10 proposals, loan proposals from top European clubs like Borussia Dortmund and I can't remember who the rest are, but um, yeah, one who might go out on loan before before the end of the transfer window, which is interesting in terms of in terms of depth in the squad because he has been used recently. But yeah, I guess whether he's involved on on Wednesday might be an indicator if he hasn't moved by then of uh, of his future. I also wonder if he is allowed to go if that's an indicator of Sancho's return that's, as well. Yeah, because Elanga's partially Elanga's used before we signed Veghorst was at. Ten Hag used him occasionally when to bring on bring him on up front if Martial came on. Which he did against Reading, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. And but with that sort of use out of the way now, so at least to some degree with Ved, with Veghorst back, Elanga's main role really is sort of a backup on the right hand side for Anthony. Yeah. With maybe Palistri occasionally. But if Sancho is back and could maybe play out there as well, well this might be the use game. does diminish. Yeah, it could be. It Ten Hag's could be. not been he's he hasn't been really blatantly saying, No, it won't be for a few weeks. And that might be because he doesn't want to keep him in the news, but he's getting asked about it every time and he's 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 hinting that it could be soon and, and why not? He's he's back in training. So it'd be great to see him play again and he'll get, I think he'll get a great, it'd be good if he, he did it at home as well because I think he'll get a great reception at Old Trafford um, when when he plays again. So this could be the one where it's a, a potential, no, I'm not going to say it. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's very rare for United to reach a final of a competition at Old Trafford because the FA Cup is obviously semi-finals are played away from uh, at neutral venues. Now Wembley, but in the past, like Villa Park and, and Hillsborough and Goodison Park and wherever. The League Cup semi-finals obviously are, but there's a chance that you play away from home. And the Champions League semi-finals, you're often away from home as well. So it's Barcelona in 2008, uh, playing against Barcelona in 2008 is when we got into the Champions League final uh, we beat City in the League Cup semi-final I think in 2010 but it's a very rare thing and I think it will be a great atmosphere if United can do it and it's it's really it's exciting and yeah we could, be, we could know we have a Wembley date to look forward to in just two or three days time and that's that's great and kind of probably beyond our expectations for the season isn't it to, to possibly be able yeah. to say that already at this stage it's, it's we'd lovely. be our first First Wembley final for a while, wouldn't it? Was it since the mm -hmm. FA Cup win? Uh, no. we It would be a first trip as fans since 2018 when we played Chelsea and lost. It would be our first... To be fair, yeah, you're right. It would be our first final, Wembley final since um, 2018. But but we were there in the semi-finals yeah, in yeah. 2020. Yeah. Is that right? Or 2021? God, I can't remember. 2020, I think it was. When we lost the three semi-finals, anyway. No, it wouldn't have been twenty twenty. There weren't there wouldn't have been fans allowed. No, I'm point. saying yeah, but we we were in the semi-final. Oh, but like the first against game, yeah, Chelsea, yeah. yeah. 
So it would be our first Wembley yeah. appearance since 2020 and our first fan inclusive appearance since 2018. And that's why I think people will be absolutely buzzing to go, including yeah. me. Um, so yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. And hopefully next time we speak to you, which will be after that game on Thursday or Friday morning, ahead of the Crystal Palace match, that we will have a Wembley final to salivate and anticipate. Until then, uh, you can find Jack's thoughts on Twitter at... At UTD Tate, T-A-I-T. And mine at Harry Robinson 64 and the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod. That's P-O-D at the end there. If you've enjoyed the show, please take the time to leave us a review on whatever app you use to listen to your podcast on. It helps us massively and helps more people discover the show, which is uh, inevitably a good thing for us. I hope you have enjoyed the show and have a great week. Enjoy the game on Wednesday. Goodbye. Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.